This is a passage when I was doing my planning um, last couple of weeks, just looking ahead to what was coming. I thought, oh, what am I going to say about that? And uh, there was a there was a, just a small temptation of uh, passing over it. But I knew, you know, you can't do that with God's word. Pick and choose the spots that you want to preach or not preach uh, or read and not read uh, pertaining to all of us. Uh, I'm so glad that uh, I resisted that temptation and, and dove into the study uh, because this has really been an encouragement to me to study this short little passage uh, that only Luke records. You know, many of the miracles and uh, parables and different uh, aspects of the life of Christ are mentioned uh, repeatedly between the Gospels. But this account that Luke gives us here uh, he is the only one that recorded it for us. And, of course, if you look back at the beginning of Luke, you'll see that he did a very careful investigation. Luke, of course, was a physician, a scientist, and so he uh, was very careful to go and, and, uh, and do the research and check the sources and talk to people and record it all so that we could have certainty concerning these things that we have been taught about the Lord Jesus. So we can put our faith in what Luke has written here. Uh, let's pick up God's reading at verse 11 of chapter 7. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier. And the bearers stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. Oh, may God bless the reading and hearing of his holy word to us this morning. Well, the, uh, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, we just read from the Larger Catechism. Uh, the Larger Catechism, I forget the number of questions that it is, but the answers are fairly long answers to those questions if we just, uh, as, as you just uh, witnessed. Uh, the Shorter Catechism, which is what most people uh, in our day uh, memorize, um, it was actually written for those of less... Uh, less ability for younger people and people who weren't very educated. Uh, so maybe that says something about us today. But of course, these familiar verse, uh, these familiar questions and answers uh, that you may have been exposed to, particularly if you've grown up in the Presbyterian Church. These first three questions I've given them to you in the outline at the bottom of your outline. Uh, a wonderful summation here of. Christian life. What is the chief end of man? That's the first question. And it says here, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And what rule hath God given to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy him? The word of God, which is contained in the scriptures of the Old and New Testament, is the only rule to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy him. Well, what do the scriptures principally teach? Scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. So, we were created for a purpose. We were created to bring glory to God and to enjoy God, to, to be in a relationship with God, to know God and to 
bring honor and glory to him through our lives and, uh, and to have that relationship, a loving father-child relationship that's very close that we can enjoy. Now, how do we know how to do that? We must look to the scriptures. We must look to God's word. And, and what is God's word going to tell us? It's going to tell us all that we should believe about God, and it's going to tell us what we should do about it. And that's really what I want to focus on today to ask those two questions. What are we to believe when we come to this passage? What are some things, and I'm giving you three things here, that we are to, to believe, instructions that we can receive from this text? And then in a, in a few minutes when we get to the end, we'll talk about more about what we should do, what's our duty as we think about what we are to believe. Well, we have this scene here. Um, uh, in this uh, account before us of two crowds, really. Um, you have a, a, a crowd of people who are surrounding Jesus. He's traveling uh, to this, the little town of, of Nain. And uh, there's a lot of disciples and others who are following Christ, interested in hearing him teach and preach and seeing the wonderful miracles that, uh, he, has been, that he has been performing healing people, and so they're traveling to the city, and then within the city, there's another large crowd, and, you know, this first crowd with Jesus is kind of a joyful uh, throng of people anticipating great things, you know, looking forward to hearing and seeing what Jesus is going to say and do, and then you have a very somber crowd of people surrounding this poor widow with her dead son traveling out of the city through the city gates into the burial ground. And of course, probably at the city gate, there was another crowd of people because that's where a lot of business was transacted. People gathered at the city gates in these towns. So here are these groups converging, and Jesus works this miracle, raises this young man from the dead, and it's witnessed by a great crowd, even though it's a small town. Pretty much everybody would have been there, plus all those people who came along with Jesus. So this miracle is witnessed by a multitude of people, and undoubtedly Luke would have interviewed some of the people who might have even been there. Well, I was reading some of the church fathers. Um, I've, I've got an interest in and uh, somehow or another in my reading of reading through some of the, the very early Christians that uh, were right after the disciples all the way up to before the uh, 325 when the Nicene Creed was written. They're called the Anti-Nicene Fathers. And we have a uh, few of their writings, and they've been compiled into some volumes that you can look at online if you're so inclined to. But Eusebius was a church historian and he wrote his uh, history of the church around 300 A.D. And he wrote about a, a, a fellow who predated him named Quadratus. Quadratus, uh, Quadratus was a disciple of the apostles. He lived in the very, you know, that first generation that w were instructed by the disciples and lived on beyond the disciples. And Eusebius is writing his history, and he has in his possession a writing from Quadratus. And he records this in the church history, and here's what he said. 
After Trajan, the Roman emperor Trajan, had reigned for 19 and a half years, Emperor Hadrian became his successor in the empire. To Hadrian, Quadratus addressed a discourse containing an apology for our religion because certain wicked men had attempted to trouble the Christians. The work is still in the hands of a great many of the brethren, so also in our own, and furnishes clear proofs of the man's understanding and of his apostolic orthodoxy. He himself reveals the early date at which he lived in the following words, and he quotes from this document that he has from Quadratus. Here's what Quadratus had to say. Quote, But the works of our Savior were always present, for they were genuine. Those that were healed and those that were raised from the dead, who were seen not only when they were healed and when they were raised, but were also always present, and not merely while the Savior was on earth, but also after his death. They were alive for quite a while, so that some of them lived even to our day. Isn't that cool? I mean, Quadratus knew some people that Jesus had raised from the dead. And he, he interacted with them. That would be really a treat, wouldn't it? And Eusebius says, such then was Quadratus. Well, this passage before us, of course, is a great miracle. And uh, one of the things that I want us to see today is that this young man whom Christ raised from the dead is really... Uh, as Calvin says, an emblem of the spiritual life which Christ restores to us. How does Christ work in the life? And we this passage. I think my microphone just went out, so maybe we can turn this one on. Maybe my battery is dead. Anyway, that's good, isn't that? Battery's dead. This man was dead. Christ is going to work a miracle. Three things I want us to see this morning. <clears throat> First of all, Jesus saves by freely bestowed compassion. Well, you have Jesus drawing near to the gate of the, the town and, uh, and this, this young man being carried out, and he's the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. So that's a very helpless and hopeless situation. A, hopeless for the young man because that man's dead. He is no more. Uh, he is, he is, he is uh, unconscious, not just swooning, as they, as they like to accuse Christ of just swooning on the cross. He was dead. And then his mother, who was already widowed, she would, she would ha and, and this was her only son. There was no government assistance in those days. So a poor widow, left on her own, would, would be left to fend for herself for the rest of her life. Uh, she would have had to. She would have had no one to protect her or to provide for her. She would have been all alone. So, without being asked, without being approached at all, Jesus sees the situation. He understands it, and he goes to her, and he says, "Out of his compassion, do not weep." And he goes and he raises the son from the dead. And that's a picture of what Christ does in the life of a believer. Christ sees us and only because he's a compassionate savior, he reaches out and he brings life where there is death. He brings spiritual 
vitality where there is spiritual death. The Bible tells us that without Christ, we are dead in sins and trespasses. Ephesians chapter 2. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We, without Christ, are dead, as dead as that young man. We may be walking around breathing and talking and living, but spiritually speaking, we are dead. And you cannot be brought back to life by your own energy. This young man couldn't raise himself from the dead. He's dead. Neither can we. It's an act of God's compassion in the work of Christ that we become believers. To put it in theological terms, we need to understand that regeneration precedes faith. Regeneration is bringing to life, bringing to life, raising the dead so that we can respond in faith. Why are you saved if you're a believer here today and someone else that you know is not? Well, you might say, well, you know, I recognize that I'm a sinner and, and I repented and turned to Jesus. Well, why did you recognize that you are a sinner and turned to Jesus? Well, um, I think because I understood, you know, I understood that uh, what the Bible said was true and, and about me, and I recognized that it applied to me, and so I responded. Okay, yes, but how did you recognize these things? And we can go on and on and on asking the questions, but there's only two options that you have here. You trace it all the way back to either yourself, and you're, you're giving yourself credit for salvation because you're just more clever than the other person, or you have to give glory to God that he broke into your life, he woke you up from the dead so that you could say yes to him. That's salvation by grace alone through faith alone, in Christ alone, not to your own glory, but to God's glory alone. I want you to be gripped here this morning with the deep compassion that the Lord has on you, if you're a believer here today. That he saw you dead on the bier, and he went to you, and he spoke his words of life into your soul, and raised you up from spiritual death to spiritual life. That's how compassionate he is. He says this to Israel, I didn't choose you because you, were, you know, had a lot of numbers or that you were more powerful than anybody else. No, you were weak and pitiful and I just set my love on you. That's what Jesus does to this young man and his widowed mother. And that's what he does for each one of us who are believers in him. So with the crowd, when they saw the miracle, I want us to, give glor to glorify God 
Give glory where glory is due. And see, when you recognize that, it's just out of his compassion for you that you are a Christian today. That makes you say, well, how can I serve this one who loved me so much? He rescued me from, I was dead, and he brought me out of death to life. How can I live this life now for him? Well, second of all, Jesus saves, well, first of all, by bestowing compassion on us. Second of all, he saves by not shrinking from death and the grave. So if you look at the text, you know, Jesus sees the woman, he sees the coffin, and he goes to the woman. She would have been in the front of the procession, that's how they did it, and right in front of the, the people carrying the beer, the open casket. And Jesus, it says, in verse 14, he came up and touched the bier, and the bearer stood still. Probably out of shock that anybody would come up from a, you know, who wasn't even part of the funeral procession and touch the bier. Because if you're familiar with the Old Testament law, touching a dead body or something that had touched a dead body made you ceremonially unclean. Jesus doesn't care about being unclean what this religious law would say about him being unclean, he goes up and touches the beer. And I think that's something that Luke tells us, that it's a little detail that you might have even read over or not even paid much attention to. But Jesus is not afraid to get in there. And that's just like Jesus, isn't it? He, he ate with sinners. He hung out with tax collectors who were traitors, you know, they were unpatriotic traitors to the nation. He, he hung out with prostitutes. He ate with them. He, he, he was fellowshipping with them. He went to lepers and he touched them and healed them. And that would have made him, all these things would have made him unclean. He didn't shrink from reaching out to sinful, unclean humanity. And when he does what he does in our lives, he's doing the same thing. As Paul said in Ephesians, we're dead in sins and trespasses. We were uh, walking the course of this world, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. We were like, we were children of wrath. And Jesus reaches out to us. He doesn't shrink from us. In fact, he doesn't shrink from going to the grave in our place himself. He doesn't shrink back from dying in our place on the cross himself. He reaches out to sinful, unclean humanity. He doesn't shrink back from us. He brings life to our dead souls and good as dead bodies, in which one day he's going to make these good as dead bodies. He's going to make those perfect, glorified bodies. Well, he does it because he himself embraced death he did it in our place, and he's placed in our grave. But it couldn't hold him, and he rose from it. Calvin says, in order to obtain life for us, he not only deigns to touch us with his hand in order to quicken us when we are dead, but in order that he might raise us to heaven, he himself descends into the grave. Isn't that wonderful that Jesus reaches out to sinners such as we are? He's not afraid of death and the grave, but he reaches out to us and he went through it himself on our behalf.
Well, thirdly, not only is Jesus compassionate to us and he doesn't shrink from us or the grave, but Jesus saves by speaking his life-giving word into our souls. You see there that he addresses the dead man. (laughs) You know, he says to the dead man, arise. I mean, who does that? Well, God does that. Jesus does that because he's God. Romans 4.17 says he gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. That same power that spoke into the, the, the life into the universe is the same power that spoke life into this dead man. It's the same power that speaks life into our souls today. It's his word. He reminds us of Ezekiel prophesying to the dry bones. I won't attempt to sing the old spiritual song about the rattling the bones. You know that one? Anyway, Ezekiel was told, well, here, I'll just read it from Ezekiel 37. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord, and he set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. And he led me around among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. And then he said to me, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you, and will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied there was a sound, and behold a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up, and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. That's a long story, but a wonderful account, isn't it? Who does the work? You know, Ezekiel's there prophesying, but it's clear that the, Lord's, that the Lord is the one that does it. I will do it, and you will know that I am the Lord. I am the one that brings life into these dry, dead bones. But it's through the Word. It's through the Word being proclaimed that God works here in the example of Ezekiel. And to this dead man, it was through Christ's word being spoken. Arise, he says to the dead man. And he arises. 
Somehow the Lord brings life into that man, makes himself be heard by that man. And he says he sat up and started talking. I wonder what he said. Who knows? Be interesting. But this is how Christ quickens us, brings life to us by faith. He infuses into his word a secret power so that it enters into dead souls. John 5, Jesus said this. He he said this is what he was going to do. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. That's what happened to that young man. That's what happened to those bones. And that's what happens to anybody who is a Christian today. The Spirit of God quickens and brings life as the word is proclaimed. So that you wake up and you can hear it and say, Okay, Lord, I I see that I'm a sinner. How can a dead man see anything? Because the Holy Spirit has brought life into the soul by the power of Christ's word. He goes on to say, Jesus, For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So, do you hear his voice? Do you hear his word today? Is there life in your soul? If you hear the word, then then you need to do something about that. You need to respond to that word. Embrace Christ. Give yourself to him. Turn from your sin. Turn from your own way. Turn from your own will. And say, Lord, I'm yours. Take this sinner, this sinner, this dead, stinking sinner, and wash me, cleanse me, Lord. Make me new, because you can do that, because you're God. And, and renew and, and cause me to be yours, and, and I will be yours. And he will come and live in you and give you spiritual life and strength. But if you hear the word today, I want to encourage you to cry out to him and ask him these things. Turn from sin, turn to him for salvation. He is the one who saves. And if you hear his voice today, and you know him already, or if you are a believer already, give thanks to God for his great compassion on you. And give thanks to God alone because he didn't shrink from a sinner such as you and I are, but he endured death in the grave on our behalf and he spoke his life-giving word into your soul. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we do pray that these things would encourage us in our service to you, Lord. We pray that you would convert people this morning turn people from death to life and we pray those of us who are recipients of that life to to be reminded that it's all because of you not because we're clever or smarter than anybody else but it's all because of you and what you've done and be truly grateful for the for the gracious gift of salvation that you have bestowed upon us help us to give our all to you to let 
every, every square inch of our lives be given over to you, to be your people, your holy nation, your royal priesthood, a people for your own possession. Remind us, Lord, that we belong to you. You bought us with a price. And make us truly grateful in our service to you and to our fellow man. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.